When you make a call with your mobile phone, your wireless carrier learns a lot about you. There's a number you called and how long you talked, of course. And in addition, the wireless company knows which cell towers the phone connects to, meaning it has a pretty good idea of where you, of where you were during the call. Now the Supreme Court is going to consider just how easy it should be for prosecutors to get access to that locational information. The justices this week said they will use a bank robbery case to decide whether law enforcement officials need a warrant to get that information from your wireless company. With us to talk about the case is Robert Mintz. He's a partner at McCarter & English and a former federal prosecutor. And Ilya Shapiro, he's a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute. He filed a brief urging the Supreme Court to take up the case. Bob, um, before we kind of delve into what the Supreme Court could do and perhaps what it should do, can we just get up to, to speed on the facts of the case? Uh, tell us who Timothy Carpenter is and why he's before the Supreme Court. Sure. Timothy Carpenter was convicted um, uh, of being involved in a string of armed robberies that occurred over a two-year period. He was involved with a group of men. He was allegedly um, the ringleader of those men, and they were breaking into, ironically enough, cell phone stores uh, armed with guns and, uh, and, steal, and stealing uh, those cell phones. And uh, the way the case progressed is the government flipped one of the co-conspirators who provided information about the other co-conspirators' cell phones. And from that information, the government obtained records on Mr. Carpenter's cell phone, uh, historical cell phone records as they were described, which the government then used to reveal the general location of Mr. Carpenter over the span of several months. And, and those records revealed that he was uh, near the robberies on at least four occasions. And the government used that information in addition to other information to convict him at trial. Ilya, what did the appellate court rule in this case? Well, it applied what's called the third-party doctrine, meaning that the uh, uh, this information, the data, uh, was freely released uh, by the uh, by the defendant uh, to his cell phone uh, provider, uh, and so he no longer had uh, an expectation of privacy in it, uh, in effect, and so the government could uh, more freely access it, at least not uh, not requiring a warrant. And, Bob, specifically, what's the issue that the Supreme Court is going to decide here? Well, it's it's a quite important issue um, because it really calls into question the structure of modern surveillance law, which is currently built on uh, primarily on a distinction between the contents of communication, such as wiretaps, which require probable cause and require um, a, a court order, um, versus non-content related information, which is what the government obtained here, which generally does not require uh, a, a warrant and is not viewed by the courts as a Fourth Amendment search. Ilya, it doesn't appear as if the appellate courts were in any kind of disagreement or conflict. So why did the Supreme Court take this case? Well, the court is, is facing more and more uh, uh, challenges uh, to government action, law enforcement and otherwise, uh, that arise from uh, digital 
uh, communications and, and other new technologies. And the court uh, has been uh, reticent to, to wade in too much or to make two uh, sweeping pronouncements that might uh, not make sense with, with neurotechnology or what have you, but it's come to a point where this practice is so widespread, this uh, acquiring the cell site location information has become so widespread, uh, and the way that courts are deciding, lower courts are deciding, uh, uh, even if it's not necessarily a strict split, there's an argument about how much there is, but there's, there's the, the doctrine is sort of getting away from, uh, from the judiciary, and I think that it's, it's wise for the Supreme Court to step in and, and exactly evaluate what's going on here, as it, as it did a few years ago uh, when it ruled uh, narrowly but unanimously that the police can't simply rifle through someone's uh, cell phone uh, looking for, for evidence of crime without a warrant. So this is the next step after that, if you will. That was the case of Riley versus California, and I think Carpenter will go down as probably the, uh, the, the biggest uh, uh, case of the, uh, of the digital era updating Fourth Amendment doctrine probably in a way that it hasn't been in, in over 50 years. We are talking about what could be one of the biggest Supreme Court cases of its next term. It has to do with digital privacy and what uh, prosecutors need to show in order to get information from mobile phone companies that show the locations you're at when you make phone calls and receive phone calls. Our guests are Robert Mintz of McCarter in English and Ilya Shapiro of the Cato Institute. Ilya, um, in this case, the government actually did have to go get a court order under something called the Stored Communications Act. Can you just explain what that is and how that is different from uh, what they would have to, to do to get, to get a, a warrant? Uh, sure. Uh, under the Stored Communications Act, which is a, uh, a federal statute, um, they don't need to show uh, probable cause um, uh, regarding uh, whatever they, they, they want to uh, determine. It's, it's a lower standard of, uh, uh, of relevance. I don't have the exact language uh, in front of me, but in any event, uh, it's not the equivalent of going to a judge and saying, uh, you know, here's my evidence, I need a warrant. It's just uh, uh, some sort of uh, suspicion. Or, or need as part of a, uh, a criminal investigation. It's a much, much lower standard, um, uh, and that's why it's, it's, it's used widely uh, even when there's not enough evidence to actually get a warrant. Bob, since they're asking for less information than they would in a warrant, let's say, of someone's office or cell phone, is this lower standard enough? Well, what the lower standard really does is it focuses on the question of reasonable expectation of privacy, and that draws a distinction between, in some ways, the type of information or the sensitivity of information versus how the government obtained it. Um, here, uh, these records, uh, according to the government, were voluntarily turned over by the defendant when he decided to use a cell phone, and he knew that information about his location vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, cell phone towers would be available to the cell phone operator. And the Sixth Circuit, uh, which is the lower court decision, which is which is now being uh, appealed to the Supreme Court, focused on that issue and, and, and made the argument that the legitimate expectation of privacy really turns on, in large part, what the government did to get the information. In other words, was it voluntarily turned over, or was the information obtained uh, by, by some more intrusive means, such as putting a GPS device on a car, rather than focusing so much on the sensitivity of the information itself? 
Ilya, I want to step back and ask a, a bigger question. So this case is about the Fourth Amendment, which was written 200 and some odd years ago. Um, and we're dealing with you know, digital technology that has you know, been changing rapidly in the past few decades. Um, how well has the Supreme Court done in terms of applying that very old constitutional provision to all the new technologies uh, and, and the vast amount of information that's out there uh, today? Well, it's uh, done better than, than you might uh, expect or, or hope. I thought you were going to ask me, uh, you know, how relevant is the Fourth Amendment? Does it need to be updated in some way? Um, but those are really the same questions, because at the end of the day, when the Fourth Amendment talks about people's, uh, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures, well, you can understand that even uh, digital effects are effects, that uh, files that we have stored in our computers are our papers, uh, etc. The, the vast uh, uh, pictures and videos and things that we have on our cell phones, that, that you don't need to update or amend the Fourth Amendment uh, for that to qualify. And similarly, uh, even though you know, 200 years ago the only kind of search that was possible was a physical search, the policeman actually going into somebody's house or, or other property and, and, and looking at it, and now there's all sorts of sophisticated means, it doesn't mean that we don't know what a search or a seizure is anymore. For example, there was the uh, Kylo case from about, uh, what, 15, almost 20 years ago, uh, with the thermal imaging where the, the law enforcement would, would, would fly over with a thermal imager to get at whether there was a certain type of heat signature in a house that would determine that that was indicative of uh, growing marijuana, for example. And the Supreme Court determined that, yes, that was a search because uh, applying the reasonable protection of, of, of privacy standard, uh, nobody would expect uh, this type of device to be used to, uh, to look at what they've protected. And so there's going to be a similar argument here here about what constitutes, what is the property uh, that, uh, who does it belong to, this, this, this data? Do you have an expectation uh, that it's going to be searched? Or is reasonable expectation of privacy itself kind of a, that might be an outmoded gloss on the Fourth Amendment, that after all is judicially created language. Um, so how should we think about uh, the protection of property from search and seizure in the digital age? If you have a so contract with your provider, does that protect you further? If there are privacy regulations, how does that work? All right. Bob, I want to get your input into how you think the court has been has been acting in this area and whether you think they are going to start to require a warrant in these cases. Well, this is going to be a really tough decision because the, the prior cases um, have been, at least in my view, less controversial. Um, the Jones decision had to do with placing a GPS device on an automobile. Um, the courts have been more sensitive to collecting real-time data than they have been to collecting historical data. Obviously, anything having to do with content is, is much more protected than, than non-content. But the problem that the courts um, ultimately have to grapple with is that so much information is available of a, of a non-content form, which when put together over a long period of time really lays out a roadmap of someone's life so that when looking at an individual piece of, of, of data, for example, um, to find out that someone was dining at a particular restaurant on a particular day may, may not be uh, of grave uh, privacy interest, but when you put together every, every location where somebody's been for the past months or two months or, or years. Um, and Bob, and I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank Bob. Bob Mintz, the partner McCarter in English, and Ilya Shapiro of the Cato Institute talking about the big new digital privacy case the Supreme Court will hear in its next term. 
This is Bloomberg.